The History Channel original podcast. Sports history this week. March 17th, 2001. I'm Kalen Jones. A young tennis phenom named Serena Williams, just 19 years old, joins her older sister Venus and her father Richard for the two-hour drive west on the 10 freeway back home to Los Angeles. Normally, a family car ride like this will be filled with bubbly conversation and laughter, especially since Serena has just won a big tournament, collecting $330,000 in prize money. But you wouldn't know it based on the mood inside the car. As Serena herself writes, they have all been stunned in the silence. They're leaving from the desert location of Indian Wells, host of one of the most important annual tennis tournaments in the world. It's a big deal. It's like as big as you can get and not be one of the four Grand Slams. And yet, in this moment, neither Venus nor Serena Williams has any intention of ever going back. Today, the two sisters, who will go on to become tennis royalty and revolutionize the sport, encounter one of the darkest moments of their careers. What happens at Indian Wells to this young, up-and-coming tennis family? And how do the Williams sisters wind up completely flipping the script on their traumatizing experience to ultimately come out on top? Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. The centuries-old sport of tennis has never seen anyone like the pair of Venus and Serena Williams when they burst onto the professional scene in the 1990s. The Williams sisters, a couple of young black girls hailing from Compton, California, are prodigies. Serena, the spirited younger sister, and Venus, the taller, unflappable elder sister by just 15 months. They turn pro one year apart both at age 14, and start competing for major titles almost immediately. Serena wins the first Grand Slam singles title in the family, taking the U.S. Open in 1999 at just 17 years old. They had already established themselves as dominant forces on the tour. Relisa Lawrence Corbett has been a sports journalist for the last 30 years, She's also the author of Serena Williams, Tennis Champion, Sports Legend, and Cultural Heroine. They were on their way to multiple Grand Slams, but they were changing the face of tennis, and it was apparent they were bringing more viewers. And with more viewers comes an even bigger change to the game. Women didn't get equal prize money at all of the Grand Slams until after Venus and Serena started bringing more eyes, you know, higher TV ratings, and and everybody has to answer to that when you're getting more viewers. 
Together, the Williams sisters win multiple Grand Slam doubles titles playing alongside one another. But crowds love when the two sisters go head-to-head -head in singles. So it's Venus v Serena, sister v sister. But as Venus and Serena's talent launches them into stardom, the tractors begin to find other reasons to poke holes in their credibility. When Venus and Serena meet in the semifinals of Wimbledon in the summer of 2000, John McEnroe speculates on television that their father is actually controlling the outcomes of his daughter's matches from behind the scenes, saying, quote, Serena may not be permitted to win. Richard may have something to say about this. Though the claim is unfounded, the heavily favored Serena loses to Venus in what some see as a bit of a lackluster performance. And the standing ovation from the crowd for two remarkable athletes who perhaps didn't quite give us the spectacle we'd hoped for, but perhaps we were hoping for too much. Afterward, this speculation of collusion continues to escalate, with Lindsay Davenport, one of the top-ranked players in the world, saying, I thought Serena was playing the better tennis, but I thought Venus was going to win just for outside reasons, adding that Serena winning the U.S. Open last year might have played a factor in it. There was the rumors that they were rigging their matches. There was no evidence, zero evidence of that. And the allegations came out of nowhere. And when they would play each other, it was kind of anticlimactic. Nobody considered that sisters who were that close maybe wouldn't be as anxious to beat the other one. They were still teenagers. They didn't have the maturity because as they got older, their matches got more ruthless. And let's face it, you don't want to beat up on your best friend in the same way. That's what it looks like when best friends have to compete with each other. But the Williams sisters just keep on winning, separately and together. And by 2001, they're on top of their game. They're getting all this publicity. They're rising to the top. You know, they're Grand Slam champions. In March 2001, Venus and Serena both enter into the singles draw for the annual tournament at Indian Wells, located out by Palm Springs, 100 miles inland from downtown Los Angeles. We actually worked with a podcast producer who couldn't wait to tell us more about this story, John Thrasher. I am a Serena and Venus Williams super fan. Most notably, I have run their biggest social media fan accounts <laughs> since about 2009. So what is it about the Indian Wells tournament that's so unique? They call it the Indian Wells Tennis Garden. The idea is that people from the LA area they get to have a night of drinking, some really delicious food, and it's very well known as sort of high-priced tickets, luxury amenities for those who want to pay it, luxury brands are sponsoring everything. It's definitely different than your standard run-of-the-mill tournament that happens on tour. It's very luxe. A lot of people have called Indian Wells specifically the fifth Grand Slam. In addition to being considered an upscale fan event, Indian Wells is also a crucial tournament for competitors on the Women's Tennis Association Tour, or WTA. There are a few major tournaments where not only are all the top players there, they're awarded more points, you need ranking points to move up. They're awarding a thousand ranking points, that's huge. Early in her career, Serena Williams considers Indian Wells one of her favorite tournaments. It features the world's best players, it's in a beautiful venue, 
and it's close enough to LA that she gets to spend some extra time with her family. It's also where, just two years earlier, she beat 22-time Grand Slam champion Steffi Graf. As the commentator notes, that win symbolized a changing of the guard. Take note, everyone, the future is now. Serena Williams has arrived. And now, in 2001, Serena earns the number seven seed at Indian Wells and continues her run of success. She cruises through the first few rounds, including an impressive win over Lindsay Davenport, 6-2-6-1 in the quarterfinals. Serena herself calls it a real statement match. Venus, meanwhile, the number two seed in the tournament, struggles a bit to get through her preliminary matches. She beats Elena Dementieva of Russia in the quarterfinals, but she finds herself exhausted, cramping from dehydration while playing under the desert sun. Venus also hurts her knee during the match, not enough to stop playing, but enough to make a tough road ahead even tougher. Because in the semifinals, she's going against her own sister. After losing to Venus, a reporter asked Dementieva, any predictions for tomorrow's match between sisters? She responds, I mean, I don't know what Richard thinks about it. I think he will decide who's going to win tomorrow. These rumors of collusion between the Williams sisters are once again front and center. Meanwhile, the semifinal match between Venus and Serena is the hottest ticket in town and promises to be the highlight of the two-week tournament. Sponsors, benefactors, and other tournament VIPs are all planning to attend. But as Venus goes through her normal match day preparation, she realizes that the knee pain from her previous match just isn't going away. Serena even notices. Venus is walking with a visible limp. Venus informs the tournament trainer that she doesn't think she can play. She believes that playing hurt would greatly increase her chances of developing a far more serious injury, and she's just not willing to take that risk. With three of the four annual Grand Slam tournaments coming up over the next few months. There are people who have withdrawn day of, moments before the match, right before they're supposed to walk out. That is not uncommon. Federer came out and told people, I can't play at the French Open. There was nothing horribly wrong with him. He played at Wimbledon the next day. Everybody, yay! You know, he's such a good guy. Normally in these situations, the event organizers will hastily put together an entertaining match so the ticket holders have something to watch. Perhaps a doubles match or a juniors match. You have to remember that this is a semifinal of this tournament. That means there's not a lot of other tennis going on. They don't have nearly as many people playing. There was no other tennis really to be had. And so, as the hours wear on, and they get closer and closer to what should be the start of the match, the tournament directors choose to remain silent. Rather than announcing a cancellation to the fans, they instead just keep their fingers crossed that Venus will change her mind. Venus did tell them she wanted to play. It was late, but sometimes you want to see how an injury will go. But she did tell them, but they didn't alert the fans. And I think they're thinking, ticket sales, ticket sales. Venus remains adamant that she can't play, even as she's stiff-armed by the tournament staff, as Serena later explains. 
Venus feels powerless, telling her sister, I really don't know why they're not making some kind of announcement. I told them I couldn't play two hours ago. By this point, the stadium is filled with fans and patrons, many of whom drove for hours out of the city to see the match. In just four minutes before it set the start, an announcement is finally made. The match has been canceled due to Venus pulling out with tendonitis. And as Serena says, the place went nuts. Venus withdrew. I'm serious. That's all she did was withdrew. And they were like, she wasn't that injured. Tennis people withdraw all the time. People quit in the middle of matches. This is so common in tennis that they would react this way is ridiculous. People just probably paid a lot of money to watch this tennis match and they're out of that money now. You're coming to watch Venus and Serena, you've got your ticket, you're excited to watch and then nothing happens. So you do understand the disappointment in that regard. This isn't to, by any means, excuse any of the reaction that happened. The tournament holds an impromptu press conference where Serena tells the reporters that Venus told the medical staff about her injury hours ago and even encourages the media to ask the tournament trainer herself to confirm. But it doesn't matter. Reports from newspapers such as the LA Times frame what happened as Venus withdrew five minutes before the match, as opposed to Venus withdrew hours before the match, yet it was only announced by the tournament five minutes before the start. The media, the tournament organizers, and the fans all seem to be united against the Williams sisters. Accusations of collusion are flying around more than ever. Despite the noise, Serena moves on at Indian Wells, all the way to the finals, where she'll face the most hostile crowd she's ever seen. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. It's March 17th, 2001. For two days, rumors have been swirling among fans, media, and players about the Williams family. Stories of fake injuries, match manipulation. Tournament organizers are well aware that today will probably not look like a typical Indian Wells tennis match. But Serena doesn't have time to think about that right now. She's facing Kim Kleisters, a young Belgian player who, like Serena, turned pro at just 14. Kleisters would go on to become the number one player in the world 
and an eight-time Grand Slam champion. And when Kleisters is introduced to the 14,000-plus fans in the crowd, she receives a standing ovation. But when Serena's name is announced... Welcome to viewers from British Eurosport. It's an amazing sound here. A crescendo of booze for Serena Williams. Again, here's Merlisa Lawrence Corbett. The Indian Wells crowd, it's, it's definitely one of the more swanky ones, even more so than the Miami Open, which is also kind of swanky, but Miami, it's in a major city where you have to kind of travel to Indian Wells. So the people who are going out there are real swanky. <laughs> and so you had these folks acting like hooligans, to be honest. Holding a large bouquet of flowers given to her by the tournament, Serena walks out onto the blue asphalt court, wearing a pink puma jumper and a black visor, her hair in two long blonde braids. She looks serious, intense, like she's actively trying to block out the noise and focus on the task at hand. She would later describe in her book, On the Line, that, at this point, she doesn't even know why the crowd is booing. The fact that her sister Venus withdrew from the semifinals due to injury two days earlier isn't even on her mind. But that all changes when Venus and her father Richard walk down the stadium concourse to take their seats. And there's Father Richard coming down. It's quite amazing. There's Venus. And the crowd, an American crowd, booing an American family. And you have to say that it does smack of a little bit of racism. It of course reeked of racism. Here are these two African-American successful female athletes putting it all on the line, who one had it had an injury. This happens in sports, by the way. This isn't a fluke. I mean, my God, especially in tennis. Richard stands and raises a defiant fist, drawing even more vitriol from the crowd. Oh, wow, I'm, I'm just speechless. I've never heard this before ever, and I've been on the circuit or was on the circuit for quite a long time. It's way past booing. This is personal. Serena describes the crowd as a genteel lynch mob, even feeling that these people were going to come looking for me after the match. And it wasn't, you know, you always have one or two ridiculous fans. This was the whole crowd. They were all participating. Richard accused someone of using a racial slur. And the way the people were behaving, I'd be stunned if somebody didn't shout one out. Just an ugly scene. But Serena knows that she needs to compartmentalize the confusion, the hurt, the anger, because her match is starting. But Serena has been put out. No doubt about it. But I don't like it. I don't like no. the atmosphere at all. No, it's very uncomfortable. Again, here's John Thrasher. She loses the first point, and the crowd goes wild. And it's like, wow, from the very first point, you know, this is what she has to deal with. In tennis, you're not even supposed to applaud someone's unforced errors. You cheer loudly for winners, but you never are supposed to applaud someone's double faults. They were applauding loudly like 
Serena had won the Super Bowl and she was their favorite team when she made a mistake. That's how they were rooting. But it's like, are you kidding me? And when Serena wins a few points in a row, the crowd basically goes silent. Remember, they're from California. Indian Wells is in California. We're going to root for the Belgian. We're going to cheer every unforced error you make. If you double fault, we're going to cheer. I mean, it's ridiculous what they did. And it was just open hostility. Kleisters wins the first set in the best of three match 6-4, igniting the crowd. She's got it. Williams trying to be the aggressor, but it didn't work. And look at the reaction. In tennis, the players take a short break, called a changeover, after every odd number of games played. So Serena, down two games to one in the second set, sits on the bench, wondering how she's going to be able to get through the rest of this match. In this moment, she later writes, that her thoughts turned to Althea Gibson, who, in 1956, became the first African-American tennis player to win a Grand Slam tournament. Sportsmen everywhere applauded Althea's triumph and shared in her moment of glory when Queen Elizabeth herself presented the symbol of victory to the girl from Harlem. Gibson endured unimaginable racism throughout her career, including the indignity of being forced to sleep in her car while on tour because the hotels where the white players stayed wouldn't give her a room. But that didn't stop Gibson from dominating. When they allowed her to play, she was in her 30s, which is ancient back then for women. And then never having played in a Grand Slam, she won five in two years. Think about that. She had never been invited. They let her in at the end of her career, and she won five Grand Slams in two years. That just tells you how dominant she might have been if they let her in in her 20s. In her autobiography, Serena describes her inner monologue in this moment. Okay, Serena, you need to be tough. I thought, if Althea Gibson could fight her way through far worse, I had an obligation to fight through this. And not just fight, I had an obligation to prevail. Serena takes the court again, with a renewed intensity and sense of purpose. She breaks Kleister's serve on four straight points. This is a tour de force now from Serena. Serena and Kleisters go toe-to-toe with each other throughout the set. And as it becomes clear that Serena cannot be rattled, some fans begin jeering in the middle of the rallies, something that's unheard of at pro tennis tournaments. Well, I don't know how she won the point. She was all over the place. And the crowd booing at the uh, far baseline because they believe that the shot early in the rally was out. After a while, it seems that now Kleisters is the one who's been forced off her game, even more so than Serena, as she starts making some head-scratching errors. What on earth was she doing there? Oh, totally the wrong play. If only she kept an eye on her opponent. Serena rides the momentum shift, tying the match at one set apiece. Serena hates to lose more than she likes to win. She said that many times. And I think at that point, I'm not losing in front of these people. I think that was kind of the mentality. It's like, okay, uh, you're going to hate on me. I'm going to win this match. 
Serena begins shouting triumphantly between points, building a huge lead in the third and final set. I think she's thriving on the animosity that this week has created. In the final point of the match, Serena serves the ball wide to Kleisters, who manages a shallow return. Serena takes one step inside the baseline and unleashes a massive cross-court forehand. The shot is struck so hard and is so well-placed that Kleisters doesn't even bother to lunge for the ball. She's a champion again. Game, set, match, tournament. Serena instantly raises both arms in celebration and screams out yes to the crowd. She does her signature 360 spin, waving at the fans with an outstretched hand. She wears a big smile on her face as she makes her way to the net to shake Kleister's hand. Still some booze, but uh, perhaps not as many as expected because she silenced quite a few of them. It's only when Serena walks over to hug Venus and Richard that the booze once again overtake the cheers. Well, I think that's, that's pretty bad. You know, she's got through so well to win this match. Moments later, Serena is interviewed on the court, where she talks about the difficulty of staying focused in front of a hostile crowd like that. That was the best thing for me. I think it was just a mental match more than a physical match. I didn't even play well, so I just was able to perform mentally. And it was a little tough because I've won here before and the reception wasn't so good. But, you know, if you're a champion, you should be able to get through it. She handles the question well, but the interview takes a slight turn when Serena is asked about her sister. Serena, I just have a question about you and Venus. Do you think the best way for you all to quiet down this controversy is to be able to play against one another, play a good quality match, and to just have things start to simmer down? I mean, we play a few quality matches. I don't know. Everyone has their speculations, and, you know, I'm just out here to compete and try to be the best player in the world. The implied accusation, once again, indicates that the crowd's behavior was at least partially the Williams family's fault. And even if the match is over, the angry mob mentality in the stands is still going. They booed when she got her trophy. They were just relentless. And what's so bad is no official came out to tell them to stop it. You know, they, they didn't do anything to like, hey, let's tamp this down. The Williams sisters decide not to return to Indian Wells the next year or the following year, or for many years after that. But both Venus and Serena pay a price for this boycott. By skipping that tournament every year, they were fined thousands of dollars because it is mandatory by the WTA and the ATP that you attend and participate in these tournaments. Not just the fine that they would pay, but the ranking points of participating in that tournament, which were very high. And of course, all of the prize money and bonuses that their sponsorships would, would provide. And they were willing to do that, to make a point that they were treated so unfairly and felt so disturbed by what they experienced that they were willing to forego all of those lucrative moments to continue just keeping their own peace. That peace doesn't come easy. In June 2001, a New York radio host is fired after describing Venus as an animal and calling both sisters too muscular. In January 2006, 
a National Post column ridiculed Serena's weight and body. Later that year, former tennis star Chris Evert, a TV analyst, writes a letter questioning whether Serena is quote-unquote tarnishing her legacy with off-court pursuits. And in October 2014, the president of the Russian Tennis Federation gets fined $25,000 by the WTA tour and is suspended for a year after questioning Venus and Serena's gender on TV. These events only scratch the surface of the disrespect Venus and Serena faced during their careers. The fact that both are dark-skinned black women at the top of what's traditionally a white sport undoubtedly plays a role. Regardless, the Williams sisters will combine to win 30 career Grand Slam singles titles, with Serena spending 319 weeks ranked number one in the world, the third most all-time. Meanwhile, the Indian Wells Tournament continues extending them invites, and every year, they decline. I love the fact that Venus and Serena just took their stuff and boycotted that place. They rendered that tournament almost irrelevant. That, that tournament did suffer, especially when Serena was going through her run, you know, when she was winning everything and, oh, nope, skipping that one. So they were able to not only punish them, but come back triumphant. In 2015, with the tournament under new management, Serena finally returns to the Indian Wells Tennis Garden. And the crowd response she receives could not be more different from the one she got in 2001. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the number one player in the world, Serena Williams! Serena had accomplished so much, and it was more of a healing thing for her to come back. To see her get emotional in that moment and cry, and then I think the camera cuts to her sister Isha, who's also a part of her team, who's also crying, and it's just such a beautiful moment. A year later, Venus follows Serena's lead and returns to Indian Wells. And I think that's beautiful too, that there, that goes, that almost answers the whole, did Richard rig their mat? No, they're individuals. And even though Serena, and now she was coming back, Venus didn't feel like I had to join her. I'm my own person. I'll come back when I'm ready. The cheers that Venus and Serena each received upon their returns, in contrast with the vitriol aimed at them in 2001, are a perfect reminder of the brilliance that Indian Wells missed out on all those years. Those scenes are an example of what makes the Williams sisters so special. Two proud athletes who refuse to take their abhorrent treatment lying down and always remain true to themselves. People were reacting culturally, kind of like we have today, getting into culture wars when they're really not the point. They're just a distraction from what's really going on. And what's really going on, you have two black girls who are decisively black. They're not even trying to pretend. They're not trying to assimilate. They're trying to dominate. That was different. But they were changing the game. Thanks for listening to Sports History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. Other notable sports stories that happened this week? 
1990, Susan Butcher wins her fourth Iditarod in five years, only the second woman ever to win the Alaskan sled dog race. And 2001, golfer Annika Sorenstam birdies nearly every hole to become the first female golfer to score 59 in an LPGA Tour event. If you'd like to get in touch, please shoot us an email at sportspod@history.com or leave us a voicemail at 212-351-0410. We'd love to hear from you. Special thanks to our guest, John Thrasher, a senior producer at A Plus E Networks, and Berlisa Lawrence Corbett, author of Serena Williams, tennis champion, sports legend, and cultural heroine. This episode was produced by David Ingber. It was story edited by me, Kaelin Jones, and sound design by The Poglomerate. Sports History This Week is also produced by Cooper McKim. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. Our associate producers are Emma Fredericks and Hazel May. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Sports History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.